upper bounds of damages against Pfizer would be $3.6 trillion. And obviously, Pfizer's not worth $3.6 trillion. The company would have to be seized in bankruptcy, its assets distributed and sold off. And I think that's an appropriate end for that company. So I'm doing everything I can to get there. After witnessing fraud and abuse among his colleagues in local government in the early 1990s, Werner Mendenhall decided to go to law school and has today spent over two decades bringing lawsuits against the government for overreach and abuse of power. Government is treating us like children, as if we can't make decisions that are appropriate for our friends, families, communities on our own. Today, he is representing Brooke Jackson in a landmark case against Pfizer, alleging fraud in their clinical trials for the COVID genetic vaccines. She went to work for a subcontractor of Pfizer, a clinical trial site, and what she saw there was absolutely appalling. And it was completely unblinded. I think that's the key point, is they knew who had gotten the shot and who had not. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Werner Mendehall, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. You've been involved in from the very beginning of the pandemic, a great number of lawsuits, a variety of legal activity around these shelter-in-place policies, the masking, the um, mandates of a variety of sorts. Um, And of course, you know, the one, the case that I'm most familiar with is you're representing Brooke Jackson in her fraud case against Pfizer. Why don't we start with how you got into doing all of these things? I have always sued uh, local, state, and federal government uh, basically for acting outside the limits of those governments. And I've been doing that for 25 years. I also sue under the Federal False Claims Act to try to recover from for fraud on the American taxpayer. So those two streams of litigation kind of came together. You can see how that would make us as a firm, we're a small firm of six attorneys, it made us ready to go uh, when the shutdown started. But So you saw something immediately when these shelter-in-place policies were put in place? Yeah, my reaction to government coming to people and saying, we know it's good for you or we're going to help make you safe, is that that's usually a signal that government's going to step out of bounds. 
And when I hear that signal, I, my antenna go up and I'm looking for what's the authority uh, for the action to take place that government wants to do. For 25 years, you've, you've had your antennas up and watching for these moments. Yes. I actually served in local government in the early 1990s. I saw a lot of abuse there. I saw fraud in federal programs there. And that's what drove me to go to law school in the first place. And, and that's why it was sort of a natural segue uh, into, into fighting this, this uh, overreach. Well, fascinating. But this, this was happening at a scale you hadn't seen before, I guess, right? Of course, this is an unprecedented scale. I, I don't, from a lawyer's standpoint, in a sense, I've always done constitutional litigation. This is like one of the, you know, greatest periods of constitutional litigation I've ever seen. You couldn't imagine it. Um, but I, I like constitutional law. I like constitutional litigation. So I actually like the work I'm doing. I hate the reason that I'm doing it. Mm. I've been tracking on this show a lot of these types of abuses without necessarily thinking of them even at some points initially as abuses. Um, and it's, it's almost like you have cases in every stage of the development of the pandemic and, the of course, the policy responses to the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. It's like a roadmap, almost. That's exactly right. As, as government policies came forth, we reacted to it and immediately had clients who were at our door, you know, asking for help. Why don't we just t tell me about your first case? How did that come about? <laughs> well, the very first case, I hate to say this, uh, it was a bar owner who I happen to know, and he got shut down by liquor control for operating after the time that liquor control said they had to shut down. And the point on that case is actually fairly simple. The state legislature set up a late licensing process. They had a license to stay open until 2 a.m. Liquor control, even though that's their name, does not have authority to supersede what the state legislature said was the scope of the license. So it was, it was a very simple uh, theory. Uh, we lost at the district court, we lost at the appellate court, and we are now at the Ohio Supreme Court three years later. So that case is still pending, but it is the limits of administrative authority. So even though it's a bar, even though it's liquor control, you can see how the limits of administrative authority is an important issue to deal with, whether it's a bar, whether it's a health department, whether it's uh, whatever, whatever entity you're dealing with. Prior to the last however many years, this was not something that was on my mind very much. Yeah. Today, it, it's greatly on my mind. Yeah. And I can see why you would take that case extremely seriously, right? Why? Because it sets a precedent right. for behavior. Right. What happened to the bar? Uh, well, the bar got shut down. I mean, there's tremendous damage to this family. Uh, and, and people don't realize that sometimes. I mean, you know, a lot of bars are just local businesses run by local families. And essentially, they've lost their income for the time period that we've been in litigation. Now, the bar owner could have caved and followed the rules exactly like the liquor control said he should, and he'd probably be open today. But instead, he, like many millions of Americans, stood up and said no. 
All right. So you started with this with this case. It's still. I imagine you probably have a great number of cases still in litigation. Oh yes, <laughs> many many cases. I don't know how many exactly right now, but well. So it, let, let's follow this roadmap. So we started with some reactions to the shelter, these shelter-in-place policies closing down businesses. Right. So what, what, what's next? The next thing was a, a criminal case. A young woman had taken her son to school. She had to go to work. Uh, the school had said, your son had gotten exposed to coronavirus. You've got to keep him home. She's like, no, I've got to go to work. So she brought him to school, and then she ended up getting arrested for violating quarantine. It was uh, the school acting administratively to quarantine her child. So she gets charged criminally, and they said the health department had issued a quarantine order. Um, there was no such order issued. A fax had gone over to, school, to the school. After the school told the health department the kid had been exposed, the health department sent over a fax saying, hey, quarantine this kid. But that's not a proper order under state law in Ohio. You have to know that somebody's had close contact with somebody who's verified to be ill, and the, only then can a quarantine order be issued. It has to be signed by the you know, head of the health department. None of that had happened. Uh, we went to court a couple of times, but the judge threw it out. Uh, but it was very scary for this mother. But she, again, she stood up. She wasn't willing to quarantine her child. At that time, of course, uh, there were all these issues with the schools and masking and quarantining. And so we got called from all over the state of Ohio about the masking and quarantining policies. And in fact, it was interesting because there's a lot of cases that never got filed. Because what happened is we would start to pay attention to a school board or school district and, and look at their policies and see, you know, and determine why they were illegal. A lot of times those policies would just be dropped. Uh, we did end up seeing, suing three school districts. I can tell you that those three school districts that we sued, every one of those cases is on appeal right now. The school districts uh, eventually dropped the mandates, the quarantining, uh, the, the mask wearing. And then the judges said at the local level, they said, well, it's moot now. There's a new mootness standard uh, that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, you know, a couple of years ago. It's West Virginia versus EPA. You may be aware of that case. And it says that unless the activity absolutely will not be repeated, it's no longer moot. So that's a fantastic case. A lot of people didn't understand that that applies in this context, and that's what we're arguing in all of these appeals right now. This reminds me so much of uh, the Bobby Ann Cox's, uh, you know, quarantine camps case, right? Where, yeah, there's there's no more, uh, you know, situation where such camps would be necessary. However, the purpose is to make sure they can never happen. That's right. They squeezed. Uh, everybody pushed back, and then they let go. But, you know, they, they are not disclaiming that they have the authority and power to do what they did. So we've got to get them literally uh, to cry uncle and say never again. And I'm not going to be satisfied until that happens. And neither is Bobby Ann. I know well, that. Well, I'm just going to, you know, mention that, that, you know, of course, she won that case against all odds. And, and then at the last moment, the, I think at the last day, the New York government decided to appeal. What this shows is government is treating us like children, as if we can't make decisions that are appropriate for our uh, friends, families, communities on our own. Our population, you know, the adults in the United States need to be trusted to be adults. And to take uh, government's information, and I think government does have that role, is to 
give us information as to what's happening, but it, it cannot violate our constitutional rights, our charter rights. It can't do that. Are you going to be continuing to pursue all these cases to the end? To, to the, the bitter, bitter end. end. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to be able to hang on uh, to the fight the whole way. We've, we've got to force the courts to do what they're supposed to do. So, you know, the, the case with the bar is at the Ohio Supreme Court. The case with the school districts, those are all on appeal. Now, we have to, we have to hold on and, and push this as far as we can. So let's discuss the Brooke Jackson case. This is, you know, initially, I, this is the, the case that I really want to discuss because it has profound significance it were, if it were to find in favor of the plaintiff, uh, so to speak, um, because you're alleging fraud by Pfizer, the, yes. the vaccine company, if that indeed is proven. Yeah, this is a keystone case, I think, for everybody in this crisis because fraud vitiates literally everything. It vitiates the contract. It takes away the PrEP Act protections, uh, and Pfizer would then be open to lawsuit. Uh, so, so we need to do that. Um, I've calculated, you know, kind of at the upper bounds of damages uh, against Pfizer would be $3.6 trillion. And obviously, Pfizer's not worth $3.6 trillion. That company would have to be seized in bankruptcy, its assets distributed and sold off. And I think that's an appropriate end for that company. So I'm doing everything I can to get there. Explain to me how this case happened and what, this, what the substance of this case is. Well, Brooke Jackson has told her story many times. Uh, she went to work for a subcontractor of Pfizer, a clinical trial site, and what she saw there was absolutely appalling. And what it meant uh, when she saw that there was unblinding, there were uh, personnel that were not qualified, there were uh, you know, patients that were coming in, trial subjects that should not have been trial subjects. There were many conflicts of interest. Some of them were family members. Uh, some of them were friends. That's not how you run a trial site. Uh, so, and, and it was completely unblinded. I think that's the key point, is they knew who had gotten the shot and who had not. And when you have that knowledge, you treat those people differently, and the data comes in and is handled differently. Um, and I think you can see that overall with the massaging of the data that was submitted to the uh, FDA for the EUA. But even before the EUA, what's interesting is Pfizer signed a contract before the trials with the Department of Defense. And the only requirement in that contract was that they achieve an emergency use authorization from the FDA. That was the only requirement. Once they got that through, then literally every shot in every arm, they got paid for, and the U.S. government had no authority to withhold that payment. And, you know, it's, it's an astounding contract. It's something under the other transactions authority, uh, you know, system in the military which provides for prototypes to be developed for countermeasures, uh, for military products, and it's supposed to be for military readiness. So I, I think it just, it's just very twisted because it raises certain questions. Why are we funding a prototype and claiming that this is for military readiness and we're putting it in hundreds of millions of arms? The other thing about that is the military owns the substance that's put in people's arms and they own it from point A until it's injected in somebody's body. There is no requirement in that contract for good manufacturing, for you know, safe, uh, effective, 
you know, anything that we would think of, there's no requirement. So if, if safety signals come up or we know the manufacturing is bastardized, it doesn't matter. They can't stop paying on that contract. Nothing will stop them except for the FDA pulling back on the EUA. Who signed this contract? Well, the Department of Defense signed it. I don't know specifically whether it was Gerald Austin or not, but the Department of Defense signed the contract. This is kind of astounding and new information. And there's we've had a number of guests on the show that have looked at this question of the of the response being a military or public safety response, a security response as opposed to, you know, a health and human services response. You mentioned that there's, you know, the manufacturing doesn't need to be as stringent under this contract. You mentioned that, you know, harms maybe don't need to be considered as seriously under this contract. I mean, that this, these are astounding realizations and obviously play seriously into everything we're experiencing right now. Right. I am very concerned about the use of the word vaccine. Uh, and, you know, this is a countermeasure. That's what it says in the contract. The other thing is it's a prototype. If you know what a prototype is, it is something that's unfinished. It's a model for something else to come. Uh, but it is not a pro no prototype is meant to uh, be injected in people. Uh, you know, a prototype car is just a lump of clay that they shape into a car. That's what this is. It's something that's been cobbled together. And, and we see that in the, in the manufacturing. We see you know, variation in any given vial from one to a hundred. Uh, we see uh, contamination in the vials. We see contamination uh, in the manufacturing process. I mean, the, it's utterly ridiculous the way this is being handled. Additionally, uh, the mRNA strands themselves, even though if you, you can produce them in small batches very carefully, has no ability to be scaled up the way they scaled it up. When you scale it up, you've destroyed the integrity of the mRNA. It's just not possible to do it. So that's why there, there are websites out there, how bad is my batch, how hot is my lot? People are right. You could get a very, very bad batch that will really have much higher likelihood of injury. So, you know, the basic reasons for the FDA to actually exist are to have consistency in product and also consistency in outcome. David Gortler has been great on this issue. And there is no consistency of product. And because of the nature of what it was and what it is, even if it were consistent, even if each vial were exactly the same, we have no idea with the individual how that individual's body is going to react to it because it's a biological process that it sets off. So we are looking uh, community by community right now in terms of what the injury and death rates have been because we think that every hospital in this country has ignored its obligation, legal obligation, to submit uh, injury reports to the VAERS system. Right, and that's actually very interesting that you mentioned that because you know, I wasn't aware until somewhat recently that if, it, if, it, if a death happens in a hospital, it's required reporting. And you're saying it, in many cases it didn't happen. Yeah, the, the hospitals all are what are called vaccine, quote unquote, program providers. And they, they sign a program provider um, certification. And that certification makes it mandatory and material 
that any injury post-vaccine that is moderate to severe is reported to the VAERS system. They're simply not doing it. I represent right now clients who uh, were told that they had to stop reporting to VAERS, nurses in these hospitals that were just trying to do their job. They had became, came under attack and they've been fired. So we're obviously looking at that issue uh, so that we can hold those hospitals in particular to account. Let's jump back to the Brooke Jackson case. The substance of the case is that this emergency use authorization, the EUA, was obtained under false pretenses fraudulently. Correct. Right. But I, as I understand it, the case has been thrown out. Well, the case is still alive. Uh, the judge has ordered dismissal of the case. In fact, uh, yesterday I was working on uh, what's called a 59E motion to, to actually call out the judge a little bit and say, look, we think that your judgment was improperly grounded and there are some other considerations here. So we filed a brief yesterday asking him to take into account those other considerations. And the main one that we want him to recognize and that we've made much more explicit is something called fraud in the inducement. That means that there was fraud in the inducement of getting the DOD to contract for this. And the fraud in the inducement was the basic uh, problem with the clinical trial data. This is another thing many people don't realize. This entire program is based on 170 trial participant endpoints. That's it, 170 people. Eight of them were in the vaccine arm, quote unquote, uh, that got uh, coronavirus, and 162 of them were in the placebo arm that got coronavirus. But if you look more deeply at the data, and if we take the overall data of the roughly 22,000 in each arm of the study, you see that in the overall data, the rate of COVID-19 was roughly the same. So the way they got down to this, this uh, 170 with eight versus the 162, which gave them their 90% effectiveness rate, was they culled those people out of, that, uh, out of that data. They eliminated people to get down to those numbers. And then they called it 90% effective. But if you, I think just people just need to step back, look at the overall data, and you can see there was no effectiveness at all. And that's a requirement you know, to get the EUA. Sure. So you, you, you think that the data was manipulated by I, removing people from the, from the... I know it was manipulated, mm -hmm. yes. The other thing that, that we see is, so there's a threshold statistically, I'm not a statistician, but they had a requirement to have in excess of 164 data points. If you don't get past the 164, you don't have a valid data set. You can't draw statistical conclusions for it. So what happens then, if you look at the 170 people who formed the final data points, and you look more closely at them, many of them should not have been included. The site where Brooke was at, which we're, we know for sure it was unblinded. The site that Augusto Rue was at, which we know there were problems and they didn't report adverse reactions. Uh, if you take those two sites, you knock out about 45 of those, those people in the 170. And there's all sites throughout the world. And, and our argument in court is, look, th they didn't even meet the statistical threshold 
to submit anything to the FDA. Um, and if they can't meet the statistical threshold, there's no basis for an emergency use authorization. So we're trying to, you know, basically take apart their argument uh, to the FDA. What do you mean when you say you know it was manipulated? Well, Brooke Jackson is a witness to the manipulation. Her case was under seal uh, at the time, but she was so anxious to save lives and let people know what had gone wrong and that this was not uh, safe and effective, that the benefits did not outweigh the risk. Uh, she got to Peter Doshi of the BMJ, uh, turned over data and information, and they decided to publish it. They decided that she was so important a witness, so important an informant about the problem, that they would put it in their journal. So I've never heard of this motion to get the judge to reconsider before, but then again, every day I learn new aspects of, of yeah. law that I didn't know to, about. So you know, let me explain. Okay. Technically, it's not a motion to reconsider. Mm -hmm. Normally, when a case is dismissed, you have an opportunity to amend. That's the normal procedure. We are asking him to apply the normal procedure, and we are arguing with him saying that this procedure, by dismissing us with prejudice without any right to amend or to address the deficiencies that he claims that are in the complaint, that that is outside the norm and that we have a right uh, to file an amended complaint to attempt to address the deficiencies that he, I don't agree with it, but to attempt to address the deficiencies that he pointed out. And we actually drafted an amended complaint, which we presented along with the motion, to show him you know, what we can do with the additional information that's come out since this case was filed way back in January of 2021. There's a lot more information that we can include. You know, it is very clear in the last couple of years, the, in fact, it's amazing, the, the grassroots research and analysis of the statistics and data has been absolutely phenomenal. And we're able to use that grassroots effort by many hundreds of people around the world. We're able to use what they've learned and actually incorporate that in our complaint. And we think that it is uh, very clear, uh, subsequent to Brooks' case, that there certainly was fraud in the trials. And there certainly is fraud in the follow-up. Uh, you know, the, the uh, longitudinal studies. I mean, the worst thing that Pfizer did was destroy the control arm. They vaccinated the controls. So, so well, explain that to me briefly. Yeah, so out of, you know, initially there are roughly 44,000 people in the overall trial. 22,000 in the control arm, uh, 22,000 in the shot arm, right? So you normally want to have long-term studies to see is there a difference in outcome between those that took the shot and those that didn't take the shot. And that is the traditional way all uh, medical trials take place because you have to know, is there a, a long-term, is there any difference in all-cause mortality, for example? Um, are there other diseases that come up more, uh, more often in the arm that got the medication? Uh, what Pfizer did was destroy that by uh, allowing the control arm to get the shot if they wanted to. 
So we don't have any control on this now. And, and um, Ostensibly because, you know, because it's such a serious disease that it would be unethical to not let them do that, right? That's the argument, <laughs> right? I, I'm laughing, but yeah, that's the, that's the excuse. I mean, we, you know, and, but we know now, you know, we know that especially for younger people, and, and frankly, those in the trial tended to be more young, there is absolutely no basis, no argument uh, to take this shot, none whatsoever statistically. So it's nonsense. So it started with this, with the, you know, the breaking of the control group. Mm -hmm. You have all these additional data based on the research that's been done from the grassroots. I, this, I want to talk a little bit more about that at, at, at some point, um, because it's, that's kind of a fascinating a phenomenon that's happened in multiple areas, not just COVID, uh, and that's helped us immensely at Epoch mm -hmm. Times as well. Um, but uh, um, so, like, what's the time frame here on, on, on figuring out, you know, the, the progress of this, of this case? Well, our, our motion was filed yesterday. Um, once we, we imagine the judge will deny the motion uh, and Pfizer will respond to the motion. So we've got, uh, you know, we have several months before the actual appeal will take place. I predict that we'll have to go on appeal. Um, but we're going to be able to go on appeal having submitted additional information to the court and information that we want to be able to refer to in our appeal that we think makes it much stronger. And one thing that just strikes me, going back to this original contract um, with the DOD, this emergency use authorization is so critical to the you know, cast mass cascade of events that follow. You can kind of imagine a great resistance from a great many sectors of society and government and industry to, to, to make sure that that, that that is not touched, that the, that the validity of that is not touched. That's just what strikes me. Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars are being, you know, earned and uh, there's hundreds of billions in profit for these pharmaceutical companies. But as time goes on, Every day that I buy, that I keep this case alive, I think increases Brooks' chance for success. Every day that we keep it alive, it keeps the conversation going and saves more and more people from taking boosters or t additional shots. And it wakes people up to the fact that this is not anything in our prior experience. You know, that it's a military contract and that we need to understand that and deal with that and question that uh, and then the, the mandates, the absolutely insane mandates at work uh, and at hospitals that came out of this as well. I mean, it made no sense. If you, you had uh, coronavirus, you were still mandated. Uh, you know, there was no testing to see whether somebody was immune or not. And then you had to lose your job. You were coerced, which has never been part of, uh, uh, you know, uh, American law in, in, my, in my life. A lot of people are kind of caught in, the, in, a, in a kind of group think. I don't know what else to call it, but I've, I've, I've encountered this. I mean, very well-meaning people who just are blind, in some cases doctors, who are just blind to the possibility that this could be vaccine injury. If they could see it, they could treat for it. You know, there's all sorts of protocols, but they simply just, in many cases, and not maliciously, as far as I can tell, from conversations I've had with people, are just blind to this 
as a possibility because of, presumably because of the information warfare, so to speak, that's been kind of put on, put on our society. I would say this, the doctors are really in a tough spot. You know, if you think of doctors in general, not the doctors here at FLCCC, but you know, if you think of doctors, these doctors recommended that their patients get the shots. They recommended their wives get the shots. They recommended their children get the shot. So the process of waking up to what is actually happening is just horrific. When anyone who faces has to face this, that's often the thing that changes them. I've, you know, I've had many discussions with people who, again, were completely blind to this until something serious happened. And that, isn't, that is often the, the tragic thing that has to happen. If somebody goes, oh, this is real. No, and I think, I mean, the doctors uh, w with FLCCC, for example, I mean, we really need to pay attention because there, there are very effective ways to mitigate some of the damage that's been done. And that's the importance of the doctors that have stepped up to date because they're now onto the next stage here. How do we recover people? How do we help uh, mitigate the damage that the spike protein did? And how do we mitigate the damage that the toxic concoction, way more than the spike protein, but the lipid nanoparticles and the other, you know, things that are in the vials. I mean, this is an adulterated product. How do we deal with the fact that everybody took this adulterated product? What do they need? How do we clean their systems up? Uh, and so all of that is in place and is working right now. The, you know, that is actually uh, probably a proper role of government would just be to set up treatment uh, centers and study how spike has damaged the population, how lipid nanoparticles have damaged the population and help people recover from that. Right. Well, and, you know, at, at the moment, you know, you mentioned, you know, all these different researchers, for example, you know, forming community and developing work, a, a whole body of uh, um, data that you've, that's yeah. been very, extremely useful to you. Um, you yourself have, you know, just recently had a conference that you organized around yeah. lawyers involved in this whole realm. So just tell me a little bit. I'm very interested in the development of community around well, helping people in this variety of ways. Yeah. It's stunning the amount of work people have done. It's incalculable. In my wildest dreams, in my prior life as an attorney before the pandemic, <laughs> I could never have counted on the kind of detailed, intelligent, incisive, insightful uh, work and research that people are doing. We're using it in the lawsuits. They're helping us become way more effective. I would have had, to, you know, a big firm with thousands of attorneys might have been able to accomplish what all these grassroots volunteers have done. So the crowdsourcing of information and the information that they are deriving is so incredibly good. And we're not talking about average stuff. This is, this is such refined research. It's PhD level research. I mean, believe me, I'm not going to go to court and present them that, with research that I can't back up. When I look at the writing, when I look at what's going on, when I look at who's doing the work, these are some of the brightest people and the brightest minds in the world. Even on the legal side, I read uh, people who are criticizing what we're doing legally in our cases, uh, including the Brooke Jackson case. 
I don't take any offense at all at that. We've got some great people who are think, trying to think through what all this means, and it, it goes in the hopper. I appreciate being challenged. That's what we're about. We're actually about having the argument, uh, having the adversarial process go. So I invite that adversarial process, appreciate that adversarial process. Well, it helps you hone your argument, It helps it? me hone my argument. It helps me think about things I might not have thought about before. And I'm not perfect, and none of us on the team are perfect, and we probably, even as a team, aren't going to come up with the perfect answers. But, but those grassroots people challenging us, challenging the system, making observations, they, it helps us immeasurably. So that, this is just a big thank you to everybody who's out there because um, you're helping save the world. What was the impact of the, your, the COVID legal conference that you organized? Oh, I, you know, we have been doing all this different litigation, you know, the education mandates, workplace mandates, the fraud cases. And I just felt like on the one hand, there's so many more of these cases that need to be brought. And I wanted to teach what I knew and on the other hand, there's all these other attorneys that have done such great work out there, um, you know, with the military mandates, for example, Bobby Ann Cox with the quarantine camps, you know, I wanted to bring us all together so that we could uh, meet each other and, and exchange ideas. And Steve Kirsch finally uh, took me up on my offer and helped to uh, organize the conference with his team. So between the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation and the Mendenhall Law Group, uh, we got about 250 people together down in Atlanta about a month ago. And uh, mainly lawyers, there were about 200 lawyers, but we also had about 30 doctors and other people who just wanted to come to the conference. But the, it was really a crucible uh, where everyone was so excited to meet, meet each other. We covered about nine major areas of law. Uh, really, my count right now is there's about 20 major subject areas. Uh, but we covered nine of them over a two-day period. And out of that conference, there's a discussion has emerged. You know, we have uh, our back channels and our listservs. And, I mean, you just can see it, it. The speed of the discussion is really increasing. People are getting excited. Um, and I also wanted to, uh, you know, by having the materials available, I guess, that was the other thing. We collated materials in all these areas. So if you're an, an attorney who hasn't done this work, you can come in and at least you know, have a general outline of what needs to happen in your case. Because many of these attorneys are from small firms. Many of them were working in other areas, not constitutional law. Uh, and we heard that story over and over again. Um, so these are people who were willing to kind of retrain themselves and go after governments and go after the companies and go after the educational institutions uh, that are violating our civil rights. Have you faced any blowback personally? Yes. Um, I, I, I faced some blowback in, my, I would say, my legal community. I was always a little bit of a, an outsider who was known as being pretty unafraid to sue anybody <laughs> you know, for these kinds of violations. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, over the years, you know, we sued many, many governments. and. Uh, had many, many issues like that. But because of the framing of this, I was uh, initially, I had some people who I considered to be friends tell me, lawyers, tell me they were never going to talk to me again. 
The other thing that happened when I, when people were getting laid off, uh, you know, we can't handle everything that comes in our door. So I was trying, you know, I would reach out to my friends and people in the various areas of law to say, look, I've got a great client for you. Perfect, for example, in the employment side, perfect work history, perfect work record, no discipline, and just got fired uh, because they wanted a religious exemption from the shot. And I, I had someone who I dealt with for years, civil rights attorney, and, and this is unbelievable, said, I don't take cases for those kind of people. And that is just a sad reflection because that's exactly who we are. We take cases for the people who are under attack. That's what we do as civil rights attorneys. You know, we do take cases for those kind of people. So I was very, very saddened by that. Anyone, you know, over time kind of apologize for blowing you off or? I had a, fr a friend of mine who's a judge and we were always friendly and would always discuss even though we were on opposite sides of this. So um, my friend who, was a who is a judge, uh, you know, was working to get people the vaccines, you know, was celebrated for it in the newspaper for all of his efforts. Um, he came up to me uh, fairly recently, saw me at court, and he said, um, Warner, you were right. So that's really the only one I can think of so far. <laughs> I want to touch on this a little bit because, you know, you're dealing with evidence all the time, right? And how often have you found the situation where, I guess it's the judge or perhaps it's the, it's the attorney on the other side, just simply aren't open to accepting that? You know, uh, the beauty of the courtroom is the whole battle is about evidence. So we have the Daubert standard, uh, you know, we have the uh, relevant standard, we have reliability. Those are words that we use. So, so the courtrooms themselves, you, you actually do, as you notice in, a, let's say, a criminal trial. They, you test the jury, you voir dire the jury to make sure they weren't uh, corrupted by the information they were hearing in the media. So we create this space that takes out those biases as best it can, not 100%. And then we go to war uh, in, in the courtroom over information over relevancy and reliability of data. That, that is a very different environment than the media environment that we're constantly in that's overwhelming and, and bombards us with messages that are false. That environment is the adversarial system. In that environment, even though I may have a firm of thousands of attorneys on the other side, and maybe it's me and a handful of people helping me on my side, now I've also got all those grassroots people behind me as well. So in that environment, they have to put one lawyer at the podium arguing that evidence over a period of time. And we have to put one lawyer at the podium arguing the evidence over a period of time. Our evidence right now, because of everything that's happening, matches their evidence, piece by piece. We're able to go to war, we have leveled we, have, we level that playing field for all of those reasons. And I feel very confident of our ability to argue anything about these shots in a court of law. 
what else is out there that, that we should know about for you? I, I hate to put it in these terms, but lawyers make their money suing people. One of the things that I'm trying to do and tried to show at that conference was that this is going to be an incredibly lucrative field uh, to uh, litigate in. I think this is going to exceed the recoveries under asbestos, tobacco, and opioids combined. Um, you know, all those mass tort cases that you've heard of, put them all in a big pile. This is bigger. It's one kind of case, and it's bigger. And I think that, that we will break through. And that's, and that's the vaccine injury case, that's basically. That's the, the vaccine right. injury. And, and then I would also say the, rem, the, the death by hospital cases, the remdesivir cases, the, the way the hospital protocols were, were applied to people. Oh, so just, those are two big categories right now. They're huge. And maybe as we finish up, just explain to me that category. I think we have some idea, but maybe just give me a little more okay. detail. Yeah. The other area is the remdesivir cases uh, and, and other hospital protocols that killed people. There are many, many of those cases out there. Um, and the statutes of limitations are running on some of those. But those, it is very clear that the protocol that was put in place in this pandemic killed people in hospitals. Uh, remdesivir itself is a deadly drug. Uh, you know, Fauci, uh, you know, was involved in the development and approval of remdesivir. Uh, at one point it had an EUA and then it was actually approved, but it is killing maybe 30% of the people who get it, maybe more. Uh, there are hospitals uh, as high as a 70% death rate for their remdesivir patients. And on the other hand, there's hospitals as low as 10%. But we've literally rank ordered the hospitals in the United States. And we're looking at those high levels, the 70s, the 60s, the 50% death rates with remdesivir. What was going on in those hospitals? The, the amount of people who've lost family members due to the protocol, I, I literally have you know, hundreds and hundreds of inquiries over this. Um, and you can clearly see how someone comes in, whether or not they had COVID actually. One of our cases, somebody came into the hospital, they didn't even have COVID but they put them in the COVID protocol and killed them. So you come into the hospital, you get the remdesivir, you go on the vent, you're given Presidex, you're given fentanyl, you're given morphine, all vasosuppressors, right? Can't breathe. And you're dead after a number of days. That's, that is the protocol. You see it over and over and over in the hospital records. Um, you know, and, and cases are, there are cases like this. And I was trying to tell the attorneys, People come into the hospital, they don't even have COVID, yet they go on that protocol. Obviously, that's a very good case. That's just a straight up medical malpractice case worth many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So look for those, you know, I'm asking for attorneys to look for those cases and hold them responsible. Additionally, right. because there's no argument to say, well, we, you know, we did our best, but the disease took the person. Right. There's no argument. They didn't have the disease in the first place. They had bacterial pneumonia or something else. The other thing is this, the remdesivir itself, there's a criteria for use. So if you've had a pre-existing liver or kidney damage or issue, which we can see in the medical record, it's contraindicated to give remdesivir. So you don't give it. If you've then given that drug to that patient who it's contraindicated for, it's called unnecessary medication of the patient. All right? That is a false claim to Medicare or Medicaid if they did that. And the attorneys can recover that money. 
Uh, we're looking at some of the hospitals now again. Uh, those, we haven't got that rank ordered yet on the remdesivir, you know, in terms of the usages. But, um, you know, we predict right now, based on what we know, that maybe 25 to 30 percent of the administration of remdesivir to patients was contraindicated based on the prior patient record. So, I mean, this is a little bit preliminary right now. That's going to be a huge area of litigation for the attorneys, both for the patient who was contraindicated for and they malpracticed on, and for us who are in the False Claims Act space who want to recover for the fraud against the American taxpayer for the use of that drug. That's unbelievable. So these are, these are the kind of two main areas that you see as being kind of bigger than, every, than anything that's come to date. That's right. I, there's another area that I think is very important. When a hospital fails to report uh, injury from the shot to the VAERS system, that is a violation of federal law. It's a criminal violation under uh, 18 U.S.C. 1001. It's also a false claim for payment as well for whatever they got paid to administer the shot. So they all sign these program participation agreements. They have this requirement to do it. I don't think any hospital in the United States met their uh, legal obligation in terms of VAERS reporting. It's fascinating to me to listen to it from the perspective of a lawyer that sues people or governments <laughs> yeah. or, you know, for, for a living. We're the cleanup crew. The doctors have done such a great job of identifying the, the, what, what's happened with the shots, the damage to the population, but we've got to come in and recover for them. You know, we've got to vindicate the injured parties, we've got to recover for the American taxpayer, and we have to disrupt these companies that have done this damage. And we actually have to disrupt our own government. You know, we have to get our government back in line. We've got to put those guardrails back up that we talked about earlier. Right now, at this point, if greed will motivate the attorneys to get moving, I want them to know where they can make a lot of money, and I will help them do that. Uh, because this is going to be one of the most lucrative areas of law going forward over the next couple of decades. And, and we need lawyers to get activated and go get that money back for themselves and for the people they represent. Well, Warner Mendenhall, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Warner Mendenhall and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.